Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of December, St. Evans is supporting New Immigrant Community Empowerment, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of vulnerable and precarious immigrant workers and their families with a focus on day laborers, domestic workers, and newly arrived immigrants. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is recording live. Well, this won't be live to you, but is recording live for me right now from a quality inn in Bristol, Tennessee. And let me tell you, we've got a rigged up situation here. My microphone is sitting on a cooler, which is sitting on a washcloth. It's very DIY. <laughs> anyway, I can't wait to sleep in my own bed tonight. And I swear I'm not riding anywhere in a car for days, but you don't want to hear about that. You're here for something else. So I'll tell you, I'm your host, Amanda. And this is episode 110. Today's guest is actually two guests, Sarah and Doris of Fashion Forward, a New York-based not-for-profit think tank established to challenge the conventional discourse around the fashion system. They share information and explore these ideas via a variety of means. You'll hear about some of them today. This includes exhibitions, white papers, public speaking, cultural guides, consulting services, and of course, being here on Close Horse. Today, we're going to talk about the impact of the pandemic from a waste perspective. This is literally something that keeps me awake at night. I don't know about you. We'll also talk about the impact of the pandemic on fashion and style. Is it real? Is it overhyped? We'll talk about that today. And we're going to hit on something that's really important to me. I mean, all of this is, but this one's been really on my mind lately. It's the exclusiveness of the sustainability movement, which I touched on in the last episode. This is part one of our conversation because we ended up talking for hours. So the second half will be coming next week. But before we get into that, I have three small business audio essays that I chose to group together. Well, because they were recorded outside the United States. I know some really deep thinking there on my part. We'll be hearing from Aoife, the owner of Along, a slow fashion crochet business based in Ireland. Desiree recorded her essay in Rome, where she runs a resale business called The Pewter Thimble. And Justine sent in her audio essay from the UK, where she explains how after getting a degree in fashion design, she realized that she did not want to work in the fashion industry after getting a glimpse of the way it worked. So she started her own upcycling company, The Fashion Alchemist. All in all, it's a great group of stories full of great ideas and thoughts that will inspire you. 
If you've been following along since the beginning of November, then you know that for the rest of the year, you'll be hearing audio essays from different small business owners within the Close Horse community. And these three are just a sample of what we've heard so far and what we'll be continuing to hear. It's been so amazing to receive and hear so many excellent audio essays about small businesses from all around the world. Small business is the future. I know I say that in every episode. I'm saying it again today. And I want you to get excited about that idea. Not only are these audio essays a great way for you to learn about small businesses within our community, it's also a chance to learn more about the hows and whys of doing your own thing, being your own boss, and everything else that comes along with it. It's not easy. You know that I believe the personal is political, and our own personal stories drive our decisions and our values. Sharing them is the way to connect with others and have an impact on their decisions and values. Trust me, it works. My hope is that hearing these small business stories will motivate you to shop small and be a great customer and encourage others around you to do the same. Then they'll tell their friends and their loved ones, and it'll just spread and spread and spread. This is how we make small business the future that we want. Okay, well, let's jump in to today's essays. Hi, Amanda. This is Desiree of The Pewter Thimble. My Instagram page is a curated collection of secondhand treasures that I ship worldwide from Rome, Italy. And I'm an avid listener of the Close Horse podcast and the department. I'm such a big fan of what you do um, and excited to let you know a little about what I do. Um, I have always been a thrifter uh, since I was a child. It's been a big part of my life um, out of necessity. I was born and raised in Eugene, Oregon, and I received a degree in dance, um, from the University of Oregon, and I've always worked as a costume and makeup designer for dance and opera um, since 2009, actually. I moved abroad for that work and lived in Berlin for a number of years, spent a lot of time in Paris, and landed in Rome, oh man, a long time ago. (laughs) I've been here ever since, and I did lots of jobs. I've done lots of interesting and not-so-interesting jobs, but always... um, with styling photo shoots in the background or working with people to find a costume or having an eBay shop for a long time. That was a rough phase. Um, Anyways, I have always been a person that visits thrift stores, especially when I travel, because it's such an excellent way to know a city. And um, so when I moved to Rome, one of the first things I did was find the consignment shops, the thrift shops, the markets, and I started developing relationships there. And um, by the time COVID had hit, I was working as a stylist one-on-one with clients where I would go in to their home, look at what they had in their wardrobe, organize it, clean it all up, take pieces to tailors, teach them how to work with artisans to take care of their clothing, and then teach them how to use the local thrift shops to sell their things, where how to shop them, um, 
and just in general how to have a more sustainable relationship with fashion to to actually give them more freedom to get dressed in the morning. Most of them were just drowning under things. Uh, so that was that was very satisfying, and I was kind of hitting my stride in that with clients. And um, I had a an art exhibition in a a museum here in Rome where I got to talk about sustainability for two months with a, a group of refugee tailors here in the city. Um, just, you know, really wonderful things happening. And then COVID hit and it wasn't safe to go into my clients' homes anymore. And so I opened up a shop where I sell my finds on Instagram. And um, people can write to me for something specific. Uh, you know, I get a lot of requests for vintage cooking supplies and pasta making pieces from Italy, um, but also a lot of, of questions about uh, big labeled pieces that will take me a while to find, but I'll probably get around to it. Anyway, I'm really loving the new shop because it gives me a chance to um, shop with some freedom and then tell people about what I know or find out about certain labels. Uh, like you, I, I can fall down a rabbit hole of research, and I really love that part. I hope to connect my client to a bigger story um, with their clothing so that they make the effort to keep it around longer. Uh, I find that we just need a stronger love relationship with the things we do let into our lives, that that a lot of the the plastics of the world have actually just strangely made us numb and we we don't feel the fabric on our skin anymore and we don't think of the stories of the people who make it and um or who are selling it or who are out there cleaning it and um the relationships I've built with people uh as I'm buying them a piece is delightful we share a story uh the places where I buy the pieces that's my community those are people who um, they send me WhatsApp messages, you know, and we, we, I speak in my broken Italian and they, they find a way to make this immigrant feel incredibly welcome in their community by, by sharing their treasures with me. So it's a whole lifestyle for me. I wouldn't have it any other way. And, um, all those things are, are on display in my shop at the Pewter Thimble on Instagram. I do drop out every two weeks, and they always have some strange theme um, because I like a little inspiration. Just a big thank you for all you do for the reseller community. I appreciate you so much. Ciao. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm the CEO and janitor of A Long a sustainable fashion studio here in Ireland producing knitwear and crochet. So I started my business about six months ago, initially because I love to crochet and make my own sweaters. I learned to crochet when I was about eight or nine, and then I started again last year when I was feeling pretty unsure about my future after graduating in the middle of 2020. I've always loved fashion, but I'd really fallen out of love with fast fashion in my final year of college. I remember buying this beautiful red winter coat and walking by three or four women who were wearing the same coat the next day, and I noticed how every store followed the same color scheme every season, and my brother told me about a company that predicts fashion trends two years in advance, and every fashion brand works off the same 
palette. And I started thinking about how cheap the clothes were and how low the wages must be. And I just stopped buying clothes. I wanted unique designs that were made ethically. And I determined I just have to make them myself. So I started my business to share my designs and people started to notice. I accidentally found a community of people who really care about the environment, who love art, and who want to wear sustainable fashion. I started with small commissions and worked up to bigger projects. Crochet really is slow fashion. A sweater can take anywhere from 10 to 30 hours or more, depending on the complexity of the design. So these ready-to-wear pieces are pieces of art, and the price reflects the labor involved. Um, equity of access is really important to me. I want to own a brand where everyone is welcome. And I've started to play with pricing options. For example, you can choose how much to pay for a sweater. Price A pays the farmer. Price B pays the designer and the farmer etc. I think it's a lovely way to bring transparency to the process and it really integrates the customer. I think transparency is the Achilles heel of fast fashion and I love to see small businesses being really open about their manufacturing and pricing models. And you know, if you love my designs and you'd like to make them at home, I sell crochet patterns with really simple instructions for about $10 or as a kit with organic Irish wool for about $80. You know, making your own clothes was in the past a sign of poverty, but now I think it's a sign of wealth. Um, knitting and crochet have become really popular in the past 18 months, and crochet is a lovely way to relax and focus on the movement of your hands. For me, you know, it's a ritual, it's a meditation, and it gives me a lot of time to think. And, you know, starting a small business, you have a lot to think about. And it's given me an opportunity to reframe my problems. You know, is this a challenge or an opportunity? When I started out with about $100, I didn't have money for branding and advertising and all the things we think of when we think of the small business that we want to own. But I've always been artistic and my business has been a lovely way to use my photography skills, my writing and my drawing. And you know, you find support. I'm really grateful to the friends and family who've shown up. And my mom is essentially my head of marketing. She tells everyone she meets about my business. And I've learned to take leaps. I booked my first brand photo shoot before I knew how I was going to pay for it. And you have to trust, you have to hold the energy. And turning your creative passion into a business, it's really fun. And there's a lot of freedom. You know, if I want to go for a walk on Monday afternoon, I can, but also I really have to set boundaries. The only way my business doesn't work is if I burn out. And my business has been so much fun, you know, not just talking the talk with beautiful branding and imagery, but also walking the walk, you know, working with Irish farmers, buying wool directly from family farms. You know, Ireland is famous for knitwear, but the majority of the wool used comes from abroad. So I saw a definite gap and I started reaching out to local farmers via social media. And I've started to work with a young sheep farmer here in Ireland who has a small flock of heritage sheep on his family's organic farm. And he produces the most beautiful crisp Aran wool, which holds stitch texture really well. And I grew up on a farm planting potatoes and, you know, getting warm eggs for breakfast. So I'm really proud that my products will support a small family farm. And it's nice to be able to wear and sell clothes, which really are sustainable and organic. So if this is something that appeals to you, you can find me at a.long.ireland on Instagram. My business wouldn't exist without social media, and I'm mindful that's not really sustainable. So I built my own website, along.ie. 
and I have a newsletter, which is unpredictable. The emails are sent every Saturday. The contents are the unpredictable part. Finding new customers is a struggle for every small business, so I'd really like to thank Amanda at the Close Horse Podcast for this opportunity, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Justine Zamora, owner of a UK-based sustainable fashion brand, The Fashion Alchemist. I started my brand because of the grim experiences I've had with the fashion industry. I knew I couldn't participate in a system designed to exploit, underpay and overwork people. My dream of setting up my own fashion brand did not align with the non-existent morals and ethics of the fashion industry, so it didn't make any sense to me to continue building a career that involved fast fashion. I have experienced doing unpaid internships during my fashion degree and wow, all I can say is what an eye-opener. Those experiences alone made me realise the reality of this industry and I saw what my future could be if I pursued a career in an industry that really didn't care for people or the planet. The prestige that comes with being a fashion designer is a myth. I don't even know why society portrays it as something so glamorous because the reality is a lot of people who work these cool fashion jobs aren't happy. That I can tell you. I remember after I got into graduate fashion week, I was so exhausted and stressed. As I barely slept during my final year at uni, I had no energy to enjoy my hard work and the collection I made. Everyone was so happy for me, but internally, I really wasn't happy. That was very depressing. I remember a moment to myself thinking, this could be me again a few years later if I started my own brand. It was sad that I had that realisation because I knew from all the experiences I've had to that point, even though they were brief, that was it. I can't expect anything better to come from a system that's broken. After I graduated in 2018, I decided working in a design studio wasn't for me because it would be exactly the same as working in the internships I did, except worse, as I'd be underpaid and have more responsibilities. So I tried luxury retail as a sales assistant. At the time, I thought maybe it would be more chill, which to an extent it was in comparison to a design studio job, but the system was exactly the same. It made me see how much clothing would be wasted each time new lines were put out. I remember clearly how much we'd send back to the warehouse if there was overstock or older lines that didn't sell in the sale. All I could think of was, where do these clothes end up? It terrified me to even think about it because how on earth would all of these be sold? Not to mention, the amount of plastic waste produced from packaging alone was very overwhelming. These experiences combined made me realise how truly wasteful this industry was. It honestly put me off, which is why it took me three years to launch my brand, as I needed time to think of a solution to this problem. I refused to add any more fuel to the fire. Yes, I meant that literally if you guys know about the fire that started in the landfill at Cantamanzo. That's our rubbish that set the landfill on fire. I have always been connected to secondhand clothes and caring for items I own. I grew up going to car boot sales with my parents and most of my toys from childhood were secondhand. My auntie who raised me took great care of my stuff from childhood. In fact, she's managed to save my first ever PE kit from kindergarten, which may I say is in very pristine condition considering its age. I'm really grateful to have had that kind of upbringing as it's helped shape me 
to who I am today. My love for secondhand clothes have always been consistent throughout my life, so it made sense to me that I launched a brand which which worked with secondhand clothes to honor and give them the extra love they need. After seeing how easily disposable clothes have become, I made it my mission to save these clothes from reaching landfill and give them a second chance by upcycling them. I believe that if we took care of the items we have in our lives, they can really last forever and we would feel way more connected with them. I launched The Fashion Alchemist on April 16th, 2021. The original idea was to buy a load of secondhand clothes, then upcycle them, but I soon realised that maybe that wasn't the best idea, because it is so easy to overconsume on that. So I asked family and friends to donate some clothes to me and I cleared out my wardrobe. I had enough clothes to start me off and that was the start of that. I wanted to create bags and hats instead of clothes because a lot of people were already upcycling clothes but not many were upcycling them into bags or hats. It's been a very interesting journey so far and going in a slow and thoughtful pace has helped develop my creativity in ways I never imagined. It has also helped me focus massively on the important things like having regular breaks to spend time with my daughter and taking days off to refresh my mind. It feels good to focus my skills in creating and developing products that are intentionally designed to last long and enjoyed forever. I particularly enjoy the making process no matter how frustrating it can get because I find so much joy and satisfaction in seeing the end result. It always gives the second-hand clothes justice to see them in their second life as a bag or a hat. And it actually pains me to think that these perfectly functioning textiles and trimmings would have been dumped in a landfill if businesses like mine didn't exist. I can't stand that thought. My goal with upcycling is to make long-lasting pieces to ensure they prolong their lives before they reach the landfill. Even if they get resold or given to someone else, they are still in good condition to be used over and over again. A few things I continue to do for progress is keeping my production small. I don't mass-produce anything, as that can lead to overproduction quite easily. So I make all my products in small quantities and offer a custom service where you can send your clothes to me and I'll upcycle them into a bag or a hat. My aim is to connect people to their clothing and for them to see it in a different light. Like, why not see it as something else? I spend a lot of time researching sustainability so I can become more aware of my own habits and what else I could do to improve my brand. The most inspiring book I have read to date on sustainability is Consumed by Aja Baba. I'm now reading Love Clothes Last by Ursula de Castro, which is a really good read so far. Your podcast alongside these books have really encouraged me to wean off Amazon slowly, but my goal is to completely stop buying from them and buy from smaller businesses instead whenever I can. The challenges of running a small business in a rural area is accessibility to supplies essential for my business. So sometimes Amazon or eBay become last minute options, but I really try to avoid that. So I make sure to to check what I need and order ahead of time. Packaging is something I'm always looking to improve. I'm currently using some materials left over from my grad collection for my swing swing tags, the safety pins and the cord. But after those run out, I will source them from a local UK business. When packing orders, I include necessities only. So the product, tissue paper to protect it, a thank you note and an invoice. That's it. I don't see the point in adding any more paper waste as there's already enough to begin with. I brand my tissue paper with a handmade wooden rubber stamp which works so well as it's very cost effective and gives a personal touch. 
I'm not too fussed with how my packaging looks as the product matters more, but I do ensure to make it look as presentable and personalized as much as possible. You can find my upcycled bags and hats at www.fashion-alchemist.com. We ship internationally and if you're from the UK, we do free shipping. We make custom pieces and offer 10% off your custom order if you give us your old clothes to upcycle. We will also be launching a new version of our bucket hat and a bigger version of our mini tote backpack, so look out for those. You can follow me on Instagram at underscore the fashion alchemist and TikTok at the fashion alchemist. Thank you so much to Desiree, Aoife, and Justine for taking the time to record these. I can tell you put a lot of work and thought into them, and they they're so good. I'll be linking to their businesses in the show notes, so please go check them out. Give them a follow. One of the most challenging categories of clothing in terms of sustainable options is athletic wear. Yet you you can't go out there and work out in a pair of jeans, or you don't want to go for a hike or a long bike ride in a dress, although, yes, I've done both of those. I have many regrets about it. Don't be like me. Wear athletic wear to do these things. Active wear isn't a nice to have. It's a need to have. And shopping for it can be so difficult, especially if you're a sustainability-minded, secondhand first kind of person, which I know you are. There should be a more affordable and sustainable way to purchase premium athletic wear. Well, guess what? I found one, and it's Revive Athletics. Revive Athletics believes clothing should make you feel good when you move, and that starts with how you purchase it. Shopping secondhand is the most sustainable way to shop, and Revive Athletics is committed to providing high-quality, premium athletic wear so you can feel good when you shop, and you can feel even better when you move. Everything Revive Athletics sells is very gently used, and they carry a wide variety of sizes, from extra small to 5X, and they offer all of the premium brands you've been scoping out, like Lululemon, Nike, Athleta, Girlfriend Collective, you name it. And while a pair of Lululemon leggings would cost you around $100 if you purchase them new, at Revive, you won't pay over $35 a pair. You're getting really excited right now, aren't you? Revive will also buy your gently used athletic wear and athleisure no matter where you are, and they'll send you a prepaid label to ship items into them. By keeping your gently used items in circulation, you're helping to reduce their carbon footprint. And that, that my friends, is the hashtag secondhand first lifestyle right there. All items are carefully inspected and cleaned with Defunkify, an eco-friendly detergent made in Oregon. And I know you were wondering about that. Are you glad I told you? Revive Athletics is committed to building and supporting community. They offer classes in their space in Portland, Oregon, and they also donate items to Rose Haven, a Portland day shelter and community center serving women, children, and gender diverse people experiencing the trauma of abuse, loss of home, and other disruptive life challenges. What an incredible place to shop. I mean, I know you're sold now. You're like, tell me more, Amanda. How can I shop? Revive Athletics. Well, 
if you're in one of my favorite cities, my former home, the place I think of as my hometown, Portland, Oregon, you can shop in person at their store or you can go online at reviveathletics.com no matter where you live. And even better, I have a special offer exclusively for members of the Clothes Horse community. Use promo code REVIVEIT15 to get 15% off your first purchase. And don't worry, I will include that in the show notes so you don't have to run and grab a pencil right now. The next time someone asks you where you got your athletic wear, you can tell them, thanks. It's revived. And know that you made the best decision and saved a heck of a lot of money too. Once again, that's reviveathletics.com. You can also find them on Instagram at revive underscore athletics. Go check it out. I think you're going to love what you see. I want to take this moment to remind all of you of the theme for the next round of audio essays. Everyone's been talking about the great resignation. And by everyone, I mean, you know, journalists, uh, media outlets, and Reddit. (laughs) So, you know, everyone. The great resignation, if you're unfamiliar with that term, is basically this phenomenon where lots of workers are quitting their crappy, dysfunctional jobs and going elsewhere. And it's happening, has been happening since about September. I feel hopeful that maybe the pandemic is finally making more and more people demand better from their employers. They want a work-life balance, they want fair pay, they want benefits, and they don't want to work in a shitty, backstabby, toxic environment. So... Let's, by using our own personal stories, get others inspired to possibly take the very scary leap to a new job or to start a business on their own by sharing our stories. So here's the theme. Tell us about the time you quit a job. What finally made you do it? How did you feel? What happened next? Did you start a new project? Did it improve your mental and physical health? What is your advice for others? who might be on the verge of making the same decision for themselves. How do you get involved? How do you share your essay? Well, write out everything you want to say and then record it using your phone or computer. Then you send it to me via email, amanda at closehorse.world. Don't worry, that'll be in the show notes. The deadline for this project is January 15th. So you have some time to figure it out. Your recording should be anywhere from three minutes to 10 minutes long. Know that I will edit it. We will clean it up for sound and it can be anonymous or not anonymous. It's all up to you. Just let me know when you send it through. All right. Well, after all that, let's get into the main event. Part one of my conversation with Doris and Sarah, which we recorded in September through the magic of technology all three of us managed to record while being in completely different geographical locations. And if there's one great thing that came out of the pandemic, it's that we all were able to start talking and communicating in new ways. Um, so let's jump right in. Why don't the two of you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, my name is Sarah Amelia Bernat. I am a sociologist and brand strategist. And I'm one of the co-founders of Fashion Forward. And I'm Doris Domoslay-Lentner, and I am a fashion historian and archivist. And I am 
the other co-founder of Fashion Forward. So what is Fashion Forward? So in a nutshell, um, Fashion Forward is a think tank, a nonprofit New York-based think tank that was conceived in order to challenge the conventional everyday discourse on the fashion system. So that could mean a bunch of things. It can range from um, the discourse on environmental and social sustainability and that, you know, all of the myriad issues that fall under that umbrella. It can mean, you know, um, parts of the consumption process, parts of recycling. So anything that has to do with fashion and what we do is we take that information and we are making accessible programming, educational initiatives, events, and resources that challenge what you see in, you know, the regular glossy magazines and where you usually get your fashion information from. I mean, I love that. I think uh, the more people we can get starting to sort of poke holes in all of that, the better. I, you know, we're recording this the day after the Met Gala and my entire Instagram feed all day has been people's outfits from that. (laughs) And I have so many mixed feelings about it because I, you know, it's like on one hand, like, I see fashion as an art form and I think it's really important, but then I just feel like it's like this worship of wealth. I have so many feelings. (laughs) I feel like our uh, missions are so aligned because I started Close Horse because I really wanted to point out the lack of glamour that is underneath all of the glamour, that the industry itself and its repercussions are not as beautiful and artful as some of the final product. When we are asked, we usually say that fashion forward really is we are exploring culture, society, technology, and sustainability through the lens of fashion. And I think that that sort of like ties back to what you were saying. It really is. I mean, fashion is it, it's two things. Like first, it is style of a predominant era. But it also is a specific garment. And that's important because it sort of means that in any given time and place, fashion is a part of our material culture that tells us how we live, of what we find important, interesting, um, what is scarce, what is abundance. It just tells so much about how we live and what we value as society. Yeah. Um, so I think it's completely normal to have all these mixed feelings because it's not fashion is not bad or it's not good, but it sort of feeds and ties into these ideas um, that are really constantly on our minds. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do think that the fashion is, in general, the styles of a time are so reflective of the time in which we live. And so it's interesting. I mean, I don't – I. I don't know what the fashion of the next few years is going to be. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was saying, like, that's it. Fashion's over. Everybody's wearing sweatpants now. There'll be no more style ever again. You know, all of this, yeah, <laughs> melodramatic stuff, right? 
And the people were just like, we cannot get, we need to get out. <laughs> Give us our gold glittery outfits. We need to get out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting because, you know, like we can look back and we can say like, oh, people dressed this way because it was World War Two, and people dressed this way because, you know, it was the 1700s. And I'm wondering when people 100 years from now look back at this time, if they can be like, oh, everybody wore sweatpants or what's going to be. I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. What a sad, sad legacy. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really funny, I think, because trends usually appear in pairs. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I'm curious if in 10 years we will look back is it going to be that we will be seeing people either in sweatpants or in ball gowns? <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. I do think when I think about a time in my life when there seemed to be such two opposite styles, two opposite trends that were like really permeating at least style here in the United States, it would be the early aughts where you have that like mainstream like Paris Hilton low-rise jeans, bedazzled everything, juicy tracksuit style trend. And then there was like the hipsters with like ironic clothes and glasses and stuff like that. And I feel like you're right. It could be sweatpants and ball gowns in the future. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even now we can see all these um, Instagram accounts and Instagram posts and, and this trend of people taking out their trash or not so much anymore, but during the lockdown, taking their clothes out or taking their trash out in Bogom. Cause like how many, what is the occasion that you can dress up to really? But it's I think like Doris can actually tell much more about this because of the archive project. Yeah. So that's a great segue. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so, yeah, so actually last year, as I found myself, you know, working from home and essentially under quarantine and um, having a, a different structure to my day, I was talking with a, a friend of mine who's actually a fashion researcher and designer in Hungary and we kind of just floated around this idea of, you know, well, what are people wearing right now um, because of this pandemic? You know, is it different from what they usually would wear? Do they have anything interesting to say about these sartorial practices at the moment? And so we started this project called Quarantine SS20. So quarantine, you know, spring, summer 20. And, well, mm -hmm. you know, we put in, we, we gave it the name SS20 because we kind of thought that it would be over by the summer. <laughs> I mean, and, and then, of yeah. course, we were wrong. So we put out a call for submissions for people to send in one or, you know, several pictures if they chose with a short accompanying text to, you know, describe what they're wearing and why. Like if, is there significance to that outfit right now in the mm -hmm. present day during the pandemic and what its relationship to the pandemic is? And so we got, um, we got, I think, over, you know, almost 170, something like 175 submissions from all around the world. So we were working from, wow. yeah, we got people from India, people from um, 
China, Japan, Israel, you know, London, lots from America, a lot from Hungary as well because of where she's based. And we really got an interesting mix of submissions. We did get a lot of sweatpants, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of sweatpants. Yeah. But we also did get a lot of people who were saying that, you know, I'm getting out this like really like bedazzled sparkly dress just to go to the grocery store to pick up like the essentials in like the two hour time bracket that my grocery store allows me to go in. <laughs> and, you know, we got people who were really, it, it was kind of like two opposites, just like Sarah was saying, it's like coming in pairs, you know, like one that was like really just, you know, very low key, like I'm sitting in my caftan or some people say said that they were wearing kimonos at home and watching TV all day. Or some people who were like, I'm just taking walks in my neighborhood, literally in my ball gown. <laughs> and yeah, so that archive is um, it's of course digital and Right now, actually in about a month or so, so the first week of October, the project is going to be featured in an online exhibition through Parsons, the new school. Oh, cool. And the, the project is called Enclothed, um, Enclothed Collective, Unresolved, because it's, you know, all of these projects that came about during this pandemic period were are really unresolved as of now, because, you know, we haven't had a lot of time since then to process everything and to kind of find closure, you know, if people ever do find closure. Yeah. But um, one thing that we'd like to do with it is to kind of find a way to make it um, a little bit more permanent and user-friendly than on Instagram. Cause at the moment, you know, we have of course the submissions on our Google drive, but we also of course have the Instagram version that is very live and publicly available. And we'd like to now kind of formulate it so that it can be searchable and a database for academics and researchers to also plug in and kind of, you know, see if they can find certain patterns or certain um, conclusions, if you will, <laughs> if you can find <laughs> conclusions from this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's so cool. I mean, what about, what about you? What did you wear during the pandemic? I mean, well, it's still happening with the caveat that the pandemic is still happening. <laughs> right. So, so now that, you know, we've had like at least just a little bit of distance from it, I think, you know, we did name it quarantine because we were assuming that the people who were submitting were in quarantine of some shape or form. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely was for a long time. Um, but so I, I did, <laughs> I did go heavy on the leggings. <laughs> Um, yeah, I did. Um, and, and, you know, part, part of the reason, part of the reason, and I think it will be, you know, you'll find that it is excusable in, is because I, I got, um, I was pregnant last year. And right. so I was wearing, I was wearing, you know, maternity leggings because you only have so many options, I think, when you're pregnant and leggings are very comfortable. And so the yeah. combination of just brought me to leggings basically 
<laughs> I'd say six or seven out of the seven days of the week. Yeah, I mean, like, well, first off, no one needs to excuse their legging wearing during uh, the pandemic, during quarantine specifically. But, I mean, you have, like, a major excuse right there because most maternity <laughs> clothes are yeah. horrible anyway and are basically leggings, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think I made, like, pretty good use of my leggings. I'm sure. <laughs> Very good investment. <laughs> what about you, Sarah? What? How did you find yourself dressing for quarantine? So Sarah is in Philadelphia, which is where I was living at that time as well. Yeah, we're kind of neighbors. Um, yeah. I was kind of in the other school <laughs> of fashion. Uh, for <laughs> me, like, I, I need to have some kind of a balance because I'm, like, literally walking from one room to another and you know like for me like I, I needed to have that kind of a structure um to be dressing up a little bit but me not too. like ballroom style but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I i had to um i think also just in general um working from home even besides of the pandemic um for some people, it works just to roll out of bed. Like, to me, my outfit really impacts how I feel mm-hmm. and what I expect from myself. Um, so for me, I wish I could go very comfy, but then I sort of get comfy with uh, my outfit as well, which, you know, <laughs> is not necessarily ideal. But, I mean, if it works for anyone... I think this is the time where we should be absolutely choosing what we like to wear and what we can wear. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely more like you in that, like, I have gotten up every day and gotten dressed into normal clothes, like my normal pre-quarantine clothes, Mm -hmm. because it helps me create that separation between work and not work. Um, and just helps me, it, I, it makes me feel better at what I do. <laughs> I can't explain it, but like yeah. more, more focused. But I did think it was interesting just talking about trends, you know, trends are one of those things that are like both created by all of us and, you know, what we do and what we like, but also, you know, manufactured to a certain extent by the industry. I really felt that the industry, you know, fearing that there, no one would come and buy anything was exceptionally pushing the agenda of sweatsuits and leggings. Like they were like, you don't have enough sweatsuits and leggings, I bet. Now's the time. Buy more. I mean, it really is. So I'm coming coming from my background is more in branding, while Doris is more in fashion history. Mm -hmm. So she's coming more from the academic side. I come more from the practice side. And I did see from in the branding world to this kind of a reaction right away. Uh, I've worked with a lot of fashion brands and they, I mean, it's a very difficult thing, honestly, to be reacting on from my side because what I see is largely also people who still need to make a living and still they still need to take care of their families and they still need to take care of their employees and that really means that they need to sell stuff. So what mm-hmm. do you do in a time where they're really, I mean, more so than usual, 
there really isn't any more need to buy yeah, things. It's true. And the soul of branding mm -hmm. is to understand how people behave, how people think, what is it that they desire. And so here we are during the quarantine, the lockdown, and these people really need to understand what we who we are under lockdown are experiencing and how we want to and can step out from everyday situations. And sweatpants is really one of those very few ways that we can it's sort true. of redefine ourselves. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It was interesting. So, I, you know, I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic and I was working for a rental company, which is probably the worst fashion company you want to work for in a pandemic because, of course, everybody cancels their their memberships immediately in rental because where are they going, right? Um, and mm -hmm. so after I was laid off, I saw them pivot into trying to rent out sweat clothes, you know, to rent out leggings and sweatshirts and sweatpants. And it, it Oh, made, no. I know. It made me really <laughs> sad. It made me really sad. Like, I just... I, you know, at the same time, it's like, I get it. It's a really hard time. You got to keep the business going and people need to have some semblance of joy and happiness in such a traumatic, lonely time, you know, like, so maybe getting a fresh pair of sweatpants that you can wear for a couple of weeks feels, feels good, you know, but it was, yeah, I, I felt also very concerned because I saw some companies who were not going to go out of business. No one was going to starve yeah. if they had to like, you know, slow down a little bit for a few months, still pushing even more sweatpants our way. And I wonder if we're going to, I mean, because we're not out of it yet, right? In fact, we're just as in it as we were last fall. I'm wondering if next spring, when theoretically things will be better, uh, if everyone's going to throw out their sweatpants once and for all, because my friends who work for other companies that among other things were selling reusable masks, saw masks drop off like sales wise immediately in like June as everybody was getting vaccinated and they are back up to their previous levels in terms of sales. And the impression everyone has is that everybody threw out all of their reusable masks like immediately. <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned this. Doris and I, um, we presented at the conference at uh, the Manchester University exactly on this. Oh, really? Yeah. Tell me more. Um, just sort of this idea that we have masks that we are wearing and we don't even realize so many times of what is the environmental and the social um, impact that goes into uh, those masks. And while we were focusing more on... Um, just a one one use what do you call that like when you use just disposable single use, use yeah. yeah yeah single use yeah so we were focusing on single use masks uh but just the amount of waste that it generated and we were documenting it for a while just walking on the street and anytime we would be seeing a mask um on the street we would take a snapshot and I, I think like we had hundreds of photos at one point. I believe that. I still see them so many places. And out here where I live, 
very few people are wearing masks when I go out. I mean, I wear a mask everywhere I go, but most people out here are not wearing masks at all. And yet I still see those single-use masks in parking lots all over the place. It's I uh, When Dora, Doris and I were preparing for this episode, we started talking about masks and I was, I was telling her, I get so much anxiety thinking about how in certain ways the pandemic has actually ramped up waste, especially, you know, masks being part of it, but just thinking about all the PPE in general and, you know, rubber gloves and extra plastic packaging, people getting their groceries delivered so they're not using reusable bags and the impact of all of that single-use stuff is it's it's my we don't even know the impact of it yet, it's right? It's mind-boggling. <laughs> so so we have just just some you know rough statistics, mm-hmm. I guess, or numbers to throw out. Um, just from our research. So um, researchers at Monash University in Australia um, found that essentially if every person, let's say hypothetically, every person on the planet used one mask, Mm -hmm. one disposable mask per day uh, during the pandemic, then it would result in the waste of 129 billion face masks. Wow. And I mean, I don't, I, I don't know about you, but like, I can't even visualize that because I don't know what that would look like. I just know it's enormous. (laughs) And then just one more, (laughs) one more, because I think we need some shock value here. The United Nations actually says, quote, if historical data is a reliable indicator, it can be expected that around 75% of the used masks as well as other pandemic-related waste will end up in landfills or floating in the seas. So that's 75% of the, let's say, 129 billion masks are Mm -hmm. pollution. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. In some form or another. I believe it. When we were having all of the just biblical rain as part of the last you know, of, of Hurricane Ida. Um, all I could think about was all of the plastic bags and masks that were flowing, being caught up in all of that rain, flowing into the sewers and ultimately ending up in the water. And it was really disturbing. I mean, it is, it's like, and that's the masks are just the beginning of this because in certain ways we moved backwards in terms of, consumption of of plastic packaging and plastic bags you know like you can't really shop bulk right now and people are getting more takeouts there's all those containers and like grocery delivery and i mean it it's it's going to be years until we fully can understand the impact from a waste perspective and you know that's going to be years after the pandemic is over which it's not so it can be really overwhelming to think about that, but I think it's really important for everyone to be mindful of that and and realize that for all the positive changes we're all working on making right now, there are still all of this. There's still all of this other waste flowing out into the world. Yeah, and it's it is truly devastating, and I think it sort of like goes back to what we were just talking about about all these yoga pants and these pandemic clothing. And I think the problem is only 
partially the fact that uh, they're overselling these items. For me, the bigger problem is that brands' involvement stop after selling the items. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it really is, I think, like an incredibly unfair and irresponsible behavior to leave people with all these um, outfits that you know that you're, they're not going to use forever. Mm-hmm. You know that they are not going to be biodegradable. So what is going to happen to them? Right, right. I mean, and that's not the people selling them's responsibility, which is really problematic because it means that they don't have to make product that lasts a long time right? They don't have to invest in the R&D to, to create clothes that last for a long time. They don't have to be cognizant of, of how these items are going to break down in the landfill so they can continue to use synthetic fabrics and petroleum-based mm-hmm. dyes and all these other treatments that make even organic fibers inorganic, you know? And so I, I would, to me, making this industry responsible for the end of life, which I feel like is, you know, quite a bit off, quite a big, like down the road, uh, would be such a major shift for everyone. We would see such a difference in what we were buying immediately. And we really have all the technology for that. I mean, as you were saying, now we have all the materials to have long lasting clothes or even super short-lasting clothes that we can just throw out in our garden and decorate in, like, a (laughs) couple of weeks and, you know, like, no fall, no harm. Yeah. Um, Or, and that's honestly, like, my dream for the future, I wish there would be more repair services, cool repair services, these mending studios everywhere, that -hmm. you would just be able to take your old clothes and... There would be somebody um, who would look at you. You would be chatting with them. They would sort of get an idea of your personality. And they would just revamp your outfit. Uh, Because I think, like, in our culture, we do have this... In a way, it's a need to, um, to reinvent ourselves through our wardrobes but there are also plenty of ways how to do that in a way that is not necessarily damaging for Mm -hmm. the people and the environment around us right right we live in this throwaway culture where a lot of the objects that come in our life they feel temporary because we don't have them around for a very long time the problem or I mean, it's problem being an understatement. The reason that doesn't work is because none of these things that come in out of in out of our life at such a rapid clip that seem temporary are actually temporary in terms of their existence on this planet. Like if we could make right. clothes that we could throw in the backyard, I mean, imagine that's a dream world to me. Like, when can we make that happen? Because if we want to continue to have new things all the time, and, you know, I get it. We're humans. We want to be entertained. We want to be excited. We like trying new things. And it's also um, a very social thing to connect with one another. 
Right. I mean, that's right. what happens essentially when we dress up to go to a job interview. We assimilate ourselves into a culture. Um, that's what happens when we wear ugly sweaters. When I mean, <laughs> for Christmas, I mean, these kind of traditions, like we really create these customs that bond us together. I and mean, fashion is really not superficial. It is extremely meaningful. And it I is. think like that's why it would be also incredibly important to uh, tap into it more. And we cannot expect consumers alone to solve this problem. While it's very important for them to understand what is at stake, we, we just cannot expect them to solve this problem. No, absolutely not. I mean, this, let me rewind on that. A lot of people hear a statement like that, which is fundamentally true. And what they take away from it is not the meaning, right? What they hear is, well, it's really the industry's job to change anything. So I don't need to do anything. I'm a passive participant in this mm -hmm. and I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And someday the industry will change and then I'll have better clothes and they will last longer or degrade immediately. And either way, I'll be along for the ride. But ultimately, coming from the person who's worked for the retailers that are making all this stuff, none of that happens without our involvement. And that is both our involvement as consumers in, you know, demanding better and not buying things that are bad, you know, bad for the planet, bad for us, and also pressing for, you know, governmental change for actual like policy around this kind of stuff. It's not going to just happen. I, I've talked about this a lot, but there was someone in my old neighborhood group on Facebook who posted about a package of Keurig cups being stolen from their porch you know, those like disposable coffee make, like they make one cup of coffee, but they're yeah, made of plastic. Yeah. yeah. Someone jumped in and said, you know, you really shouldn't buy those. They're actually like not recyclable and the coffee's really not even that good. If you want instant, more instant coffee, you can try this, blah, blah, blah. And someone else came in and said, who cares if someone uses K-cups? None of us can ever compete with what Amazon is doing to the planet. So we should just keep doing what we want to do. Mm. And... I'm just like, ah, oh, no, I know somewhere you saw someone say Amazon's impact on the world in, from an environmental perspective is far more significant than yours. And that is, in fact, true. But that doesn't mean that we all just give up and wait for Amazon to change because Amazon will not change without a push externally. Yeah. So this is this is where like our initiatives come into play. Right. So at our symposium, for example, um, we've had questions of consumption and production. And like, I think part of the problem, which is why we founded Fashion Forward, is that, you know, there's a lack of accessible information that doesn't feel like it's, you know, either being shoved down your throat from, you know, somebody that, I don't know, some people might interpret to be too radical or conversely, you know, Vogue telling you that this is how <laughs> it should be or, yeah. You know, yeah, like it's all the information that's out there just always seems kind of hard to swallow, mm -hmm. to be frank. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you know, that's why we're creating 
these symposiums where we have speakers who really like break it down in a way that is non-threatening. It's understandable. People use language that is, you know, you don't need a, you don't need like a PhD to understand it. You also don't need, you know, like you, you can come in and you can recommend it to your friends and, you know, you can pass it along and it's donation based. So there's really no barrier to entry. And we absolutely love it when people donate because then we can, you know, keep these initiatives going and get more symposium and more resources out there. But, you know, overall, the bottom line is, is that we would like this information about all different aspects of the fashion system to be open and available you know, in a, in a non-threatening, easygoing, friendly, but informative way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think you're onto something there because a pattern that I see a lot, especially around social media and, you know, everybody has good intentions, but unfortunately a lot of shame comes into play and a lot of guilt. And that, that doesn't make someone want to fight for change or make change, right? It makes it inaccessible because starting off feeling like you're the problem <laughs> is never going to lead to something good. I'm sure there are a couple people out there who like that's what motivates them, but like in general, being called out as as the problem is never going to make someone feel excited or engaged, right? Um, and I think I think it's it, the challenge is to like find that balance where it's like here's what's going on. Uh, obviously this requires change that is so much bigger than you, but it does, that doesn't mean you should give up because what we really need is a lot of people to have their mind on the same thing to make Absolutely. that change happen. Right. And that kind of a unity is really, I think like missing from the discourse in general. I mean, as Doris was saying, uh, these groups and platforms that are very radical, very mainstream, um, very academic, very businessy, it's uh, difficult to find a platform that is a non-judgmental, accessible, uh, and informative at the same time. And especially, I think, when it comes to the sustainability discourse, it is something that is extremely essential, but at the same time, sustainability can be very exclusive. Mm, very. Um, I agree. I agree. There's a lot of gatekeeping there, especially around like education and wealth and race. And, and even consumption too. I mean, if we are thinking about... Um, keeping up with culture, inserting ourselves um, into situations that are required for social mobility. I mean, fashion is something that we need to participate in. And I think it's only a very small, for now, it's only a very small part of society that are able to buy sustainable clothing um, of course, you always have second-hand option, but then when you are, for example, not living in major urban areas, it's a little bit more difficult. I mean, 
the idea of fast fashion, for example, was born out of this idea that clothing can be democratic. And mm -hmm. of course, it went wrong, and there are so many ways <laughs> how to uh, repair that, because right now it's, it's a very, very problematic uh, thing when it comes to production. But still, yeah. one thing that it's still able to do is that a lot of people can participate in, as opposed to sustainable fashion that unfortunately many people already feel that they're not part of the discourse because they cannot afford it. Mm -hmm. Or their sizes aren't available. Absolutely. Or their I mean, body shape. Yeah. yeah. Abilities that's are another not. major issue. Mm -hmm. Also, I, I belong to this group on Facebook. It's actually for people who live in Portland where I don't even live anymore. <laughs> but it's like <laughs> women who like are in business and network or something like that. And I never actually participate, but sometimes I read the posts because I'm creepy like that. And someone posted like, hey, I've been thinking about starting a sustainable clothing line. What do you think of when you hear sustainable clothing line? And everybody only was like, I mean, it I was laughing out loud, but I mean, I also was like, yeah, touche. You're right about all of the stuff, right? It was like, oh, I think of things that are really overpriced, but really not that cute. I think of things that are solid earth tones and made of mm -hmm. hemp. I think of things <laughs> that you could never wear to a work or like a formal function. I think of things that only fit thin women who do yoga. You know, I think of things oh. I can never afford. And I was like, yeah, I mean, these are, these are all real, you know, like I, I hear that. It's like, um, it's unfortunate that it's seen as the counter to fast fashion, right? It's like you have two choices. You can either buy fast fashion or you can buy sustainable clothing. We know that's not true. But, you know, in general, that's the narrative. And yet the sustainable option, it reflects so many of the shortcomings of the fast fashion option. Yeah. It, and it plays into a lot of stereotypes and it's very exclusive. It's not a solution as it is right now. It really isn't. And honestly, the whole sustainability discourse is, I mean, sustainability had been around for a very, very long time, but sustainability as an aspirational category. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really isn't older than five to 10 years, like, 10 years really like since the economic crisis, since the housing crisis, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. it's kind of the aftermath and the, the product of the housing cri crisis, if you will. Um, so I mean, we are at the very beginning of a journey and things have changed tremendously already, I think, in the last 10 years. Um, if you look at, for example, how supply chains are working, how material development is working, it, it really is just the beginning of something that is going through a crazy transformation. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of Newark's for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go, 
Newworks is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newworks purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the ash and chest print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the Newworks prints are unique conversation starters, all of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love Newworks, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, Newworks is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shining gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. It's interesting to think about sustainability in fashion as an aspirational lifestyle really arising after the financial crisis as as fast fashion was also really taking off exponentially. And I think for so long, it's been the counter narrative to fast fashion. So even though fast fashion made fashion more democratic and more accessible for so many people, for some, it kind of took without the elitism of, of fashion previously, it took the fun out of it for them. And I do think a lot of people pushed themselves over into that sustainability space. I'm thinking of like, for example, Reformation, because it was a more premium idea to them. It was creating an aspirational alternative to fast fashion. And I think that 
is it, it kind of began maybe with the wrong motivations to a certain extent. And that's why it is still 10 years later so inaccessible to so many people because it has that aspirational lifestyle attached to it. And every time I say or use the word aspirational, especially in relation to fashion, it's never, it always ends up not being good, like a good story. Yeah. I mean, aspiration has that kind of a divide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a person who's worked for brands that were thinking like, how can we be more aspirational or, you know, like what's our aspirational customer? Yeah. We'll take money from everybody else, but like, who's the customer we really want? Mm -hmm. um, it always ended up being something that was really, you know, steeped in a lot of classism and racism, ableism, anti-fat bias, all of those things. Um, so, not that I'm saying sustainable clothing is that, but it's just, I think it isn't as accessible because of where it began. And my hope is that as more people want those things, that can change, but it's, it's got a, a long ways to go. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to even know what sustainable is anymore. <laughs> I mean, because, true story, right? <laughs> like what are, yeah. you know, what do you mean when when you say sustainable fashion? What, there is what? no such a thing as sustainable I fashion. I know, I know. Every time I say it, you have to imagine that it's in like really bold quotation marks because, right, it doesn't mean anything. A lot of the brands that are out there really selling on this platform of sustainable aren't. Where they should be selling on the platform of accountable. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's, storytelling is nice and it's very, very important for consumers, but we have had enough storytelling. And <laughs> Agreed. Our, yeah, our markets are super saturated. We have so many brands. So I think like sooner or later, they will have to start like really getting on accountability and put the storytelling on the side and match it with data. True, true. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think I like to hope that we have reached the peak in terms of storytelling around greenwashing because it's nothing has any data to back it up at this point. And so many words that 10 years ago would have felt very meaningful in terms of describing the way your business model functioned, they have lost all of their meaning because they've been misused. Yeah, or just some of these words are. I Empty. mean, what I think drives me crazy is conscious fashion. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that sort of, <laughs> that sort of implies that, like, if you're not getting that, what are you unconscious? <laughs> I mean, what are you if you're not buying conscious fashion? Like, I know. How are you seen? I mean, I mean, the implication of that is either you are conscious or you don't care about anything. Exactly. Like, that's not true, you know? But I think also that subtly sells that idea to you, right? As a customer where you're like, well, I don't want to be that person who doesn't care about anything. I'm a person who cares. I must be conscious. Of I will course. buy this conscious collection. <laughs> yeah, but then like my issue, yeah, and I think everyone's issue is that what does it make those people who cannot buy those items? I mean, and that's how these kind of social patterns are being regenerated. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. why those groups who are able to buy fa uh, sustainable fashion 
are going to be seen as more refined, more um, intelligent and sophisticated as opposed to people who are buying fast fashion. Oh, absolutely. Which, I mean, I understand, like, now I may come off as somebody who's promoting fast fashion. That's no, really no. not what I'm doing. <laughs> by the way, Sarah is uh, promoting, being promoted and paid for her appearance by fast fashion. <laughs> now, I, uh, I think, I mean, this is another podcast that's not my podcast, that what I'm about to say, but where that would lead. Uh, I went through a phase, uh, which like was earlier in the pandemic where I felt like I had a lot more time to just doom scroll and be mad at people on the internet. Um, as a lot of us felt where I would see, especially during the election season, a lot of people who ostensibly should be on, you know, my side of politics, right. Uh, on Instagram painting people who, you know, maybe voted Republican or um, lived in the South in general, or, you know, maybe didn't fully understand climate change, this kind of stuff as just being dumb, poor hillbillies and kind of further polarizing mm-hmm. this world that's already so polarized. But everything that I was seeing was so, it was so deeply entrenched in classism that like, oh, all the people who vote Republican and who don't believe in climate change and you know all the stuff they're they're just dumb and poor and i'm like actually like a lot of people who vote that way and have those political beliefs like have a lot of money and are really educated and you're just right now you're just being the elitist that we're all being painted to be on this side of the aisle you know (laughs) uh and i do i think that there is a lot of that happening in the sustainability, for lack of a better noun, space where it's like very exclusive. Uh, you have to be a certain type of person who dresses a certain way, lives a certain way, you know, lives in a certain place to participate. And for me, the thing I think about most of all is how how do we change that? How do we get more and more people involved and feeling comfortable to be involved like they matter and are invited yeah most people do react to positive reinforcement more than negative reinforcement but i mean in order to do so i mean change needs to happen on a big scale and that Mm -hmm. works on the commercial side too and no change is going to happen because a very, very minor part of society is doing it. Exactly. Exactly. It's going to involve being inclusive. Well, and also that change is not going to take place if, you know, if you're just placing the blame on somebody else or, you know, shaming somebody else for their decisions. I mean, it's essentially, it's victim blaming, you know. In a, in a way. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, basically, I think what the pandemic made even more obvious is that the, the fashion system really, as it currently is, is not, you know, and then here we go again, sustainable <laughs> to use... To use that word again, yeah, we need a new word. But, well, although to be fair, I'm not using sustainable 
in that sense of like, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking about like, you know, what is the long term life? Right. Of what is the, the literal system? meaning? Yeah. The actual yeah, literal yeah. meaning. You know, we, yeah. We not, like it doesn't mean. Yeah. Exactly. We can't keep going the way we are right now because, you know, especially from what we saw, there were people who were out of jobs or if they kept their jobs, many people in the, the global South were not getting paid to work. And yet these factories were, you know, churning out clothing by the millions. And, you know, people did kind of have that time to be a little bit more introspective. And I think interestingly enough, now that we're kind of going back to the office, back to schools, back to physical places of being, it's a little bit sad, but it feels like that introspection is waning. And so yes. the question is, how can we keep those conversations alive, right? And this is where it's a two-way street. That's, you know, what we said before, but just to underline it because it's so important is we need to have parts of the industry who are listening to what people are saying and what they want and how they would like the system to be shaped and then mm-hmm. create, you know, their create and produce according to that. But we also need to have consumers who are actively involved and in saying like, Oh, I actually don't like this and this policy at this store or at this brand. And therefore I'm, I'm going to say something about it or I'm going to, and by say something about it, you know, that could also just mean like literally put like a social media post up and let, you know, let other people mm-hmm. know your feelings about it, or maybe, you know, write about it or just talk about it with someone and just not, not just sweep it under the rug because if, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a two-way street again. It's you can't have that meaningful change if you don't have people from all parts of the system involved. System. Absolutely, I feel like that really is the key. Like, and that's like mm-hmm. I kept having that in my head while we were talking about it. That we talk about reforming the fashion system. If we want to reform the fashion system and not a fashion body. Mm-hmm. then we need to approach it from all sides. I agree. I agree. And I do think, I mean, I would be curious to know what you think on this. I think now is probably the best time we've ever had to make this kind of change and have our voices be ha- be yes. heard, especially if it's in a critical mass. Because, you know, one, in the past year alone, so many different industries and corporations that in no way engaged with their customer base on any level have been forced to make changes and react accordingly when a critical mass of voices demanded it. Like now, it is a standard thing to call out for accountability from these brands on social media. And yes, there are still brands who ignore it 
who don't acknowledge it. But I can tell you that behind the scenes, as a person who's worked for a lot of these brands, they're hearing it, okay? (laughs) They know. They know. They're hoping that we will forget about it and walk away. That maybe when the pandemic is over, we will move on because we'll be too busy going to all these like hot vax parties or whatever (laughs) we were supposed to do this summer that didn't happen, right? They're hoping we're going to forget about it. And I think my hope, you know, when it seemed like in the spring life was going to go back to normal and it it hasn't, uh, I felt very fearful that it seemed like a lot of people had forgotten everything we'd been through and all the stuff we'd kind of begun to reckon with around the world. Um, And I was worried that everyone was going to forget that and just go out and buy a whole bunch of new bathing suits and, I don't know, go party all summer. And I I would get really sad. I would be sad thinking about all the loss and trauma of the last year and all of that just evaporating and no one changing from that. And it's kind of like, okay, well, we're still going through all of this and it's it's still really scary time. The news every day is filled with more upsetting and dire things that are happening around us and the impact of things that are happening around us. And I want us to like build the habit of demanding better as a group and bringing more people into that in a welcoming, encouraging way, not in a like, oh my God, I can't believe you're wearing something from Fashion Nova way. Um. <laughs> oh man. Because <laughs> uh, because I see that kind of stuff. Sometimes people, I mean, and I know that they just want to like connect with me, like build a relationship with me, a parasocial relationship via Instagram or something. And they will send me like a post of someone wearing a Target dress and be like, I just thought they were better for, than this. This makes me sick. And I'm like, well, okay slow your roll here. Why did that person buy that dress? Could you ask that they buy 10 more? Is it the first thing they bought all year? You know, did, did they change sizes during the pandemic and they have no clothes to wear and now they had to go to a job interview? Like, do you currently have slow down here for something more or is that what is exactly that's an important one. I think I agree. I agree. And it's like, if they went to Target and bought all the dresses, okay, that's, that is maybe there, there's a problem there, but like, we can't just judge. Even then, I think this is something that everybody needs to start within themselves and not with others. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You need to evaluate how you approach uh, fashion and the consumerist world and and what is it that you can do uh, both in terms of your budget and your time and energy and how much can you learn I mean there are so many components um, and <laughs> we cannot exp- I mean it's it, I think it's even difficult to and maybe that is the reason why people tend to focus on others because it can be overwhelming but still the change must start from ourselves that makes sense yeah yeah i mean i've been doing a lot of thinking about because i'm thinking about this problem all the time like how can we do better how can more people feel included how can we rip away this judgment and I do think that there's like this fundamental human nature. I I don't I don't know. I I was thinking about how 
sometimes we just want to be mad at someone else when we're frustrated with what's going yeah. on around us. And so it's easier to pick someone that you worked with who bought a new dress from Target and be angry at them mm-hmm. than it is to think like, whoa, this is a whole system that is a problem, you know? Where does that person live? They might That might have been the only place to go get a dress in their size today. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's a much bigger problem. And I, I think that sometimes we just – we want it. We're frustrated and we want an easy – outlet Mm -hmm. for that frustration. And so these are all the things I'm thinking about all the time. Like, how can we move beyond that? How can we grow as a community that turns into a movement that, you know, creates really impactful change? Because it won't happen if we're all just angry at random people on the internet for buying clothes from Fashion Nova. No, and I think a community is something that is extremely important for these kind of processes. Um, because we also, on the emotional and social level, we need to engage with others, we need to connect, we need to digest information, we need to learn how to evaluate those. And it's extremely important to have those kind of communities where you feel that your opinion may be accepted, your questions may be accepted, you wanting could be accepted, um, and, and that's, so that's not necessarily a bad thing, as you were saying. I think as long as it is on people's minds, that is a step towards something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making progress for sure, for sure. But I do, I really believe that now, now we have the potential to make more change than we ever have. Me too. I mean, just even like in terms of, technology and just being able to transmit your voice, um, to express yourself, to be creative about it, but also the other technological inventions, um, whether it is materials or a better design or eliminating waste during design, there is all these different components that are possible because of different technologies. This conversation with Doris and Sarah was so good that it was it was hard for me to find a point to break it in half. So there's so much more coming next week, kind of picking up where we left off. We'll continue our conversation about the power we have as individuals to make change in the realms of fashion, waste, sustainability, and so on. Fashion Forward is about to start a Kickstarter to fund their zine. We'll be talking about that more in the next episode, but please go check out their website, fashionforward.io, to learn more about all of the projects they've been working on. I'll link to their website and Instagram in the show notes. They've been doing so much cool stuff. You could lose a whole day just going through their website. I'm going to wrap this all up pretty fast because I really want to get back on the road and finish the journey home to bird in hand. So exciting. But I just want to revisit Sarah's point. Fast fashion democratized style, trends, fashion as a whole, removing the barriers of cost and accessibility, making fashion something that anyone could participate in. Okay. Maybe not everyone, because fast fashion still refuses to dress a lot of bodies out there in the world. But in general, 
thanks to fast fashion, fashion and style became less exclusive. At the same time, the rise of visual social media platforms like Instagram and YouTube, later followed by TikTok, allowed everyday people who weren't models or celebrities or editors at Vogue, just people who wouldn't ordinarily have the opportunity to be style leaders or trendsetters, well, they now had the chance to show off their own style and influence others with their taste and suggestions. Yes, I'm talking about influencers, but I'm also talking about us. Because the idea of a new outfit for every Instagram post might have started with influencers, but it trickled down to all of us and kind of got into our psyches, just like mason jars at weddings, getting married in the desert, epic bachelorette weekends, birthday months, various meme formats. All of those things spread to us and then we spread it out to the people around us. This stuff got into our head and encouraged us that we too should always wear something new, that we were all style icons to the people around us. And I would say, yeah, that's that's pretty true. Fast fashion and social media are so dependent on one another for their revenue streams, it's almost hard to figure out how you would pull them apart at this point. Fast fashion did not cure the elitism, the sense of exclusivity, the classism and racism that has always been the MO of fashion. That all still existed. In fact, fast fashion only elevated designer labels and luxury goods to an all new level of supreme hashtag goals. Fast fashion was great for luxury because it made those items even more of a signifier of status and wealth. Sure, that dress from Forever 21 might make you look cute, but the Louis Vuitton bag meant you had arrived. Sustainable clothing was another category that found itself firmly ensconced between luxury and fast fashion in terms of price. It was not only a way to show the world that you rejected fast fashion, but it was also a way of saying, and I'm way too evolved to care about luxury too. Unfortunately, rather than activists, thinkers, and educators leading the sustainable slow fashion movement, brands have been leading it. They've been controlling the conversation there, and they've been controlling what sustainable fashion looks like, feels like, and who gets to be involved in it. Unfortunately, these brands don't plan on selling to everyone, hence the lack of sizing, the lack of diversity in its models, the lack of true education attached to the brands and their social media presence. If you don't see yourself reflected in this image of slow fashion that's being projected by brands and its influencer partners, why would you feel like you could join it? This has only succeeded in making slow fashion less accessible and less inclusive. In fact, I would say that luxury has a more diverse client base than sustainable fashion does at this point. It's not for everyone, and unfortunately, this movement will never succeed if it's not for everyone. Social media not only helped grow fast fashion, it grew luxury sales too. I mean, the it bag, you see it on the gram, you gotta go buy it. And it's definitely also driving so-called sustainable fashions business too. What if we harnessed that power of social media and rather than 
rather than using it to sell someone something, we use it to educate and welcome people into the community. This is something I'm thinking about constantly, hence all of the work, and trust me, it is so much work that I put into Instagram posts. The average post takes three to four hours to create, but I'm okay with putting all of that work into social media. It's worth it to me because I want people to see real information and a better path forward sandwiched between ads for clothes and makeup on their feeds. And you can do the same just by sharing photos showing your own attempts at sustainable lifestyle changes. From slow gifting to secondhand shopping to mending, show me how you're storing your food. I mean, these are all great things that we can share with the people around us. Let's use social media for good. Let's exert our influence to those around us and show them a better path forward. And let's welcome new people, so many new people into this more ethical, less wasteful way of life. That's the path forward for slow fashion. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, researched, written, edited, and hosted by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you're enjoying yourself, please leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. That's how we get more people into this community. If you would like to support my work, please check out patreon.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.